0: Amen. Well, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. How's everybody doing tonight? Yeah, we having a good week so far? No. Are we having a good week so far? Wow, okay, that's not great. If you're having a bad week, I'm really sorry to to hear about that. I don't know why. This week is no different than any other week. But hey, listen, if tonight is your very first time, we just wanna say we are so glad that you're here. Uh, Before you leave tonight, we would love to have the chance to get to know you, connect with you, and just say that we are so glad for you being here with us. Well, tonight we are in week two of a brand new teaching series called Broken Saviors. Broken Saviors. Now, found in the Old Testament, in the, the book of, of Judges, the people of God were a mess. There's really no better way that, to describe it than the fact that they were a mess. You see, through Moses, God had led the Israelites out of Egypt. And as they came out of Egypt, God eventually led them into the promised land through the leadership of a man named Joshua. But after they had settled into this promised land, after they had really begun to to make this place their home, things started to go south. The reality of of the fact that they were home and they were now settled was starting to sink in. And they began to believe this lie that they knew better than God. They they, They began to believe this lie that they knew better than God. And so what would happen is they would turn their back on God. God would tell them something, they thought they knew better, and so they would end up rebelling against God. And for years, they got stuck in what seemed like this never-ending cycle. God would would give them a command, he would tell them to to do something. They would think that they knew better, leading them to, to be disobedient, to rebel against God. And as a result of their disobedience, God would allow them to be conquered by their enemies. He would allow them to be conquered by these nations that that surrounded them and their enemies. They would oppress them. They would make their lives miserable until eventually the Israelites figured out that they actually didn't know better than God. They would cry out to to God for help. And, And how would God answer the Israelites cry? How would he answer that the cry of his people? He would answer their cry by sending broken saviors. You've probably heard them called judges before. Now, these are not the the judges that that you and I think of today. These aren't the judges that you see on on TV shows. These are not the judges that sit in, in a courtroom. These judges, they were ordinary people. Ordinary people that God would would raise up and use in a powerful way to deliver the Israelite people from oppression. Last week, we looked at one of the first judges, and it was a man by the name of of Ehud. And Ehud had a really distinct weakness. He was left-handed. How many lefties do we have in the room? Not a lot. Interesting. All right. Well, you see, back then, being left handed would be considered a weakness. And despite Ehud's weakness of being left hand, God used him to defeat a very powerful Moabite king, showing that that when we are weak, God's strength is really on, on full display. Well, tonight we're going to look at uh, another judge, and this is the only female judge and it is a woman by the name of, of Deborah. Everybody say Deborah. Deborah. Debbie. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open to, to Judges chapter four. All right, Judges chapter four. And before we jump into to our story tonight, I'm just gonna give you a fair warning. Y'all ready? Okay. In this story, there are a lot of big names, there are a lot of big words and there are a lot of cultural references that were really specific to that time. And I know how it goes when there are a lot of words that we don't understand when we read the Bible. It's easy to get hung up. It's easy to get distracted by them. We're not sure how to pronounce them. So listen, as we walk through this story tonight, I'm going to challenge you to lean in, okay? Don't get, don't get distracted by the big names. Don't get distracted by the big words. We're going to unpack what what God is speaking to us tonight. All right? Y'all with me? That was not convincing. Are y'all with me? All right. Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera the commander of his army, was based in herosheth Hagoyim, Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Notice the very first word of verse 1. The very first word of verse 1 is this word, again. And that word is, is really significant because that word tells us that this is not the first time the Israelites had done evil in the sight of the Lord. No sooner had had Ehud died, had they received relief from this oppression that that they found themselves in, than the people went back to their old ways. They went back to their old ways of thinking that they knew better than God and, and living in sin. And so what happens? It's this cycle that we just talked about a minute ago. God allows them to be conquered by a king named Jabin. And Jabin was very unique in the sense that he would instill fear and he would instill panic in the people that he ruled because he had such a strong military. He had such a strong military that was was led by a man named Sisera. And the author of this book tells us that Jabin had 900 iron chariots. All right, I know that doesn't seem important to, to us now, but back then having 900 chariots was, was the equivalent of having the strongest military ever. All right, these were tanks. These men, they knew how to fight. And so because of the Israelite sin, God allowed Jabin and, and Sisera to oppress the Israelite people for, for 20 years. All right, the Israelites, they're going through it. All right, they're struggling and they're under this severe oppression. Look in verse four. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of abinoam from kadesh in naphtali and she said to him the lord the god of israel commands you go take with you ten thousand men of naphtali and zebulun and lead them up to the mount tabor i will lead sisera the commander of jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the kishon river and give him into your hands so you you see here we're introduced to to a woman by the name of, of deborah and there's really no better way to describe Deborah than the fact that that she was a, a unicorn. All right, Deborah was unique. All right, she was one of a kind. And at the time, Deborah was in a very strategic role of of leadership, and it was very unlikely to have a woman in this type of of leadership role. Not because women were, were incapable of it, but because this was a very male-dominated society. You didn't see many women who, who were leaders at that time. And, and despite all of this, she really finds herself in this strategic position of, of leadership. And she's responsible for, for the nation of Israel. So much so that the author of Judges tells us that she actually used to sit under this, this palm tree, And she used to sit there and if you had a problem as one of the Israelites people, you would would come to her and she would help you settle that problem. She would help you settle that that dispute. And because she was constantly found under this tree, she actually had a a tree named after her, the, the palm of Deborah. And so one day she's sitting underneath this tree and she sends for a man by the name of Barak. You see, God had revealed to Deborah that Barak was supposed to assemble an army. And Barak, he was going to assemble this army and lead the people of Israel into battle against Sisera's army. This has kind of become the moment where they're saying, listen, enough is enough. We're gonna finally take back this land that that belongs to us. And God, he had promised to deliver the Israelite people from the oppression that they were experiencing. And so Deborah calls Barak over. She begins to explain to him all of these things that that she needs him to do. And look at how he responds in, in verse eight. In verse eight, it says this. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Interesting response. Because plain and simple, Barack hesitates. He's not too sure what to to think in this moment. And even though this command had come directly from God through Deborah, he pauses for a minute. I'm sure you can imagine how he would be feeling right now. Every scenario is probably running through his head of how this could possibly go wrong. I'm sure he's nervous. I'm sure he's uneasy. I'm sure he's probably a little bit scared. And that fear, that panic, it causes him to do something completely unheard of. To ask a woman to go to battle with him. Look in verse 9. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Now it's interesting when you compare Barak's response to the response of, of Deborah because Deborah's response really could not have been more different. She doesn't hesitate. She doesn't pause. She immediately agrees to to go into battle with him, even though this was completely unheard of. And I don't know that the tone of the voice that that she answered Barack with, but I'd like to think it was really encouraging that she jumped at the chance to, to go with her friend into battle. But you see, because Barak hesitated, all right, because he had this little bit of a, a pause, Deborah tells him that he's not going to receive the, the victory. He's not going to receive the, the credit for the victory that they're going to experience. Instead, their enemy, the, the people that they conquer, they're going to be delivered into the hands of a woman. Now, I want you to remember this because we're going to come back to it later. All right? In verse 11, it says this. Now Eber, the Kenite, had left left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law. And he pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaninim near Kadesh. All right. This seems like a little random detail that is thrown in the middle of this story by the author. Here we're talking about Deborah and Barak, right? They are getting ready to to go to battle. This war is, is imminent. And yet the author pauses for, for just a minute to tell us about a man and his wife who are fighting with their neighbors. A man and a wife who are fighting with their neighbors. And as a result of this fight, this man and this wife, they pick up their tent and they move it out to the middle of the desert. They move it out to, to the middle of nowhere. Now, when we read this, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense but as you'll see in a moment, it's not really a, a random detail at all. In verse 12, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harisheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all of his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. right, this is just giving you an overview of the geography at the time. All right, so you had Mount Tabor, which was this giant mountain, and at the base of it sat a river. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. All right, what just happened? So so Deborah and Barak, they go off to to war against Sisera and his army. And as this battle begins to to ensue, Sisera escapes, and he flees on foot. He begins to, to escape. He leaves his men behind. In fact, if you jump one chapter ahead, chapter five gives us a little bit more detail as to why. You see, Sisera had to to flee on foot because this heavy rainstorm had come. And because this heavy rainstorm had come, it had flooded this mountain that sat, or this river that sat at the bottom of the mountain. And all of Sisera's 900 chariots, they essentially got stuck. They couldn't move because this river had had overflowed and he wasn't able to to use them anymore. And here's the the craziest thing. This rainstorm took place during the the dry season. This took place during the, the time of year where it was never supposed to rain. This would be like it's snowing in Brandon, Florida in the middle of July. All right, it's just not gonna happen. All right, this would be like snowing on July 4th weekend. All right, it's not gonna happen. But all of a sudden, this rain comes, this river overflows, these chariots get stuck, and Sisera has to escape. You see, God is already working out this this simple miracle that turns Sisera's greatest advantage, his 900 chariots, into a severe disadvantage. Look in verse 16. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Heresheth Hagoyim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. All right, do you remember that random husband and wife that picked up their tent and moved it to the middle of the desert this tent just happens to be right in the middle of the area where sisera is fleeing so what does sisera do he sees the tent he sees that this is a potential ally and so he goes in look in verse 18 jael went out to meet sisera and said to him come my lord come right in don't be afraid so he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you if anyone is in here, say no. But Jael, Eber's wife, I hope y'all are ready for this, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep exhausted she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and he died let that sink in for just a minute all right She took a tent peg, at the time, what would have been considered a common household item. Kind of think about it being like a a pair of scissors in a sense, something that you had in your house. And she went up to him while he was sleeping. She took that thing and that hammer and went straight through his temple. That was brutal, absolutely brutal. Look what happens in verse 22. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man that you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. This is a pretty great story, right? Like whoever said the Bible wasn't interesting is, is completely wrong because I don't know where else you read something like that. So, so for the rest of tonight, I want us to answer the, the question of what can we learn from this story? All right, what piercing truth can we, can we learn from Deborah, Barack, and Jayo? How can we hammer this home? Because I think you guys really need to understand what's at stake here. You guys are lame, you guys not, did not just catch what I did there. I was proud of that one. So listen, here's the, the main idea for tonight. All right, here's the main idea, and it's gonna be on the screen behind me. God does his greatest work through simple acts of obedience. All right, God does his greatest work through simple acts of obedience. You see, to to bring down Sisera's army, God did not need the, the strongest military leaders. He didn't need the the perfect battle plan. He didn't need heavy machinery. Instead, he used weak people who were simply faithful to obey him. He used Deborah, a a woman who challenged her friend to to step out in faith. He used Barak, a man who who trusted that, that God would protect him. He used Jael. Uh, an unrespected housewife with with a tent peg, the most basic household item. These were people who would have been considered weak. These were not people who were seen in society as being strong people, yet God used them to forever alter the, the history of Israel because they were simply faithful to obey him. And listen, this is just one example. You see, all throughout scripture, we see God use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Why? Not because they were special, not because they were great, but because they chose to walk in obedience day after day after day. You see, students, the the same is is still true for us. God desires to use each one of us in, in a powerful way despite our weaknesses, despite our failures, despite our insecurities. But God doesn't need your ability. He never has. He only needs your your availability and your obedience to, to do what he has called you to do, both big and small. Both big and small. But so many times, here's what happens. I think we try to to overcomplicate this idea of obedience. We try to overcomplicate this idea of obedience, and here's what I mean by this. I think it's really natural for us to become focused on being obedient in the big things. We can become so laser focused on being obedient in the big things, things like, where am I gonna go to college? What am I going to major in? Who am I going to marry? How many kids am I going to have? What job am I going to do? Where am I going to going to live? And these things, they're not unimportant. They have the the potential to impact our, our lives. However, if we're not careful, I think we can miss out on the importance of the small things as well. We can begin to, to become so laser-focused on these big things that we miss out on the small things. Things like spending time in, in God's word, sharing our faith, being connected at church, honoring our parents, being careful with our words, telling the, the truth. These are our things that many times might seem small to us, but they're not small to God. They matter to God because ultimately those things, they demonstrate our love for God. Listen to to what Jesus says in in the book of John. He's talking to the disciples. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus, Jesus says this. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. You see, our obedience comes as a direct result of our love for God. And God desires us to be obedient in both the big things and the small things. Because you see, our obedience, regardless of of what it is, it has a cumulative effect Over time. Meaning that when we choose to obey God, even in the the smallest of things, day after day after day after day, it'll make it significantly easier to obey God when the big things come. It'll make it easier to to obey God when things come that that don't make sense or that, that challenge us to step outside of our comfort zone. Listen, don't underestimate the effect of of daily obedience, of being obedient in in the big or small things, because listen, it's not wasted in God's eyes. It's something that that God values, and and you never know how he's going to use it. You know, as I look back at my own life over the past few years, there's one person in my life that... I am so thankful, understood this truth really more than, than anyone else. I know a lot of you guys are familiar with, with my story, but when I was in high school, church was pretty much the, the last place that, that I wanted to be. In fact, um, if I were to, to be honest with you, I, I pretty much hated church. And I'd like to think I was justified in that response because when I was in eighth grade my my parents walked through a really difficult situation at another church in the area and that situation forever changed how I viewed the church and how I viewed the people of the church and so when my family came here to to Bell Shoals when I was in ninth grade this could not have been the, the 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 last place that I wanted to be This was the place, the last place that that I wanted to be found. I remember walking in the the front door my very first Sunday here, and I'll never forget, I I really thought to myself, like, these people are just a bunch of hypocrites who say that they love Jesus, but they don't act like it. And whenever I could find the the opportunity not to be at church, you best believe I was going to take it. I played sports at the time, I had all sorts of of extracurricular activities going on, and unless my parents were gonna force me to be in church, there there was no way that I was gonna be there. And so every few Sundays, my my parents would sit me down, they would talk to me about the importance of of being there, and I just kinda blew it off. They weren't gonna be the people to to change my, my mindset on this, especially after what I had just seen them walk through. But I'm so thankful that I actually had a small group leader. That despite how miserable I was, that despite how bad of an attitude I had, she never gave up on building a relationship with me. At the beginning of of our small group on on Sunday morning, she would ask us two questions. It's what you all refer to as brownie-frownie. She would ask us, what's the the best part of your week and and what's the worst part of your week? And that was the only talking that I did in that small group for about two years was answer that question. I was the, the, the kid that the small group leaders really didn't like because I just sat there and looked disinterested the whole time. But that didn't stop her from continuing to get to know me week after week after week, she continued to to build a relationship with me until eventually those two questions turned into a a full-blown conversation. Then that full-blown conversation turned into her coming to to one of my basketball games or or taking me out to, to lunch. And before I knew it, she had begun to to totally shift my perspective on how I view church and how I view the people of the church. And listen, she didn't do anything special. She didn't do anything special. All she did was show up every Sunday and build a relationship with me. None of us would think that those are two really crazy special things. They're about as basic as they come. But listen, because she was obedient in the small things, because she made Sunday mornings a priority for her family and and she was here, because she made building relationships with the girls in her group a priority, she forever changed the trajectory of my life. Not only did she change the the perspective of how I saw church, she also began to, to share with me the importance of why I needed church and the importance of the community that comes from being here. And listen, a huge reason as to why I'm standing here talking to you tonight is because of the impact that she made in my life over 10 years ago. Not because she did anything special because she was obedient to to do the small things. Listen, anything in life that, that truly matters, it will require you to be obedient. And most likely it will require you to be obedient in the small, in the ordinary, in the things that that often get overlooked for a long period of time. But listen, however small that they might seem to us, they are never wasted in God's kingdom. And you don't know how he's going to use those small acts of obedience right now as a middle school or high school student to impact the life of someone else for generations to come. So as we close out tonight and we get ready to to sing, I'm gonna ask you to to bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody talking, no one looking around. And I wanna ask you a question. And just in the quietness of this room, I want you to to really be real about this before the Lord. But if you were to take a step back and and to look at your life right now, I want you right now in just the quietness of this moment to identify what are those areas in your life that, that you're not being obedient to the Lord. Maybe for some of you, it is the big stuff. You don't know what the Lord wants you to do next year for college. You're not sure what the the future is gonna look like. You're concerned about how the next five years of your life is gonna play out. Maybe for you tonight, you're not being obedient in the big stuff. But listen, I think there are a lot of you in this room who who also are not being obedient in the small things. You know that that God's called you to, to reach out to someone and to love someone, but you haven't done it. You know that the Lord's convicting you about how you're talking, the things that that you're looking at, but you're unwilling to to give it up. You know that the Lord's working in your life about how you speak to your parents and how you interact with with your family, but you're not ready to, to make that change. Listen, Your obedience to the Lord is a direct result of your love for him. So what is it tonight that you need to lay down and that you need to be obedient in? God, we love you and we thank you so much for the opportunity to to open your word tonight. God, I thank you that even when we mess up, even when we turn our backs on you, even when we act like the Israelites did. God, you are still faithful to forgive us and and to provide us a way out. And God, you require obedience from us because you desire a, a relationship with us. And our obedience is a direct result of our love for you. And so God, I pray tonight that if there are areas in our life that, that we are not being obedient in, whether they be big or small, God, that you would bring those to light, that you would convict us. And not only that, would you then give us the courage to turn and to walk in obedience with you. To be, to be able to say that tonight is the night where this disobedience is going to stop and we are gonna begin to pursue obedience because we love you and because we wanna follow you. God, we thank you so much that even when we mess up, even when we're disobedient, you love us enough to forgive us. It's in your name that we pray, amen.